Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Brian Caffarella, author of Breaking Barriers, Student Success in Community College Mathematics, published by CRC Press in 2021. Students face a range of challenges as they enter college mathematics. This can be compounded when they arrive from a hiatus from formal education, from negative experiences and associations with mathematics, or with any of the major stressors of family and employment bring it bearing down upon them. But an understanding of the barriers students face must, to be useful, be coupled with an understanding of how those barriers can be overcome. This book describes a detailed study of the paths taken by several students who entered community college at the developmental math level and who successfully passed the college-level courses needed for their degrees. There's a great deal to learn from their accounts, and I'm delighted to have the author here to talk through some of them. Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for making the time. I'd like to begin, as usual, to ask um, for a bit of your own mathematical and educational background. Uh, Thank you. So my bachelor's degree from Pace University is in mathematics with a education minor. Uh, My master's is in math education. Uh, So it's an education degree with uh, 18 credit hours of pure maths. And my PhD from the University of Dayton is in educational leadership. And I should have said uh, your background in educational training, uh, which thanks. Um, And again, to set up the book a bit, could you say who your target readership was and what your goals were in writing it? Ultimately, it was to really be able to get people to understand the complexities of the issues, the array of issues that community college students face um, when taking or attempting a math course. Uh, Math is really the most difficult subject for so many community college students. Uh, That is seen by the low success rates in general, really across the country in mathematics. Um, In terms of who I was targeting, uh, generally community college faculty, so that we can really better understand our students and what we can do to help them, and ultimately what we can do to help them help themselves as well. And of course, community college leaders who really may not who may be in a position to oversee community college math, but may not really have the background or the understanding of the discipline, help them to understand, again, a little bit about community college math and, again, the students. And also in terms of the uh, the target readership, uh, this is probably a pretty broad um, term, uh, but academic researchers. So those may be graduate students, doctoral students, um, seeking degrees in community college leadership, possibly developmental education, and really looking for more of a background and understanding about community college math. There are a lot of great articles, scholarly articles, that discuss um, the issue of introductory community college math, but there aren't many books 
comprehensive books that discuss community college math. So that's really what I'm hoping to provide to academic researchers as well, kind of a comprehensive resource to understand um, present issues in community college math. So actually going in that direction, um, for readers who may not be that familiar, as well as for readers who, who may have some experience, what should we understand about the situation community colleges find themselves in with respect to mathematics education? Well, first of all, community colleges are open admissions institutions. So really anybody who applies um, can get in. Um, and regarding um, entering math, typically students take a math placement exam um, based on how that how they scored on the placement exam that helps them to, you know, somebody decide what level they test into. Do they test into lower developmental math, higher developmental math, college level math and whatnot. Some schools are also using what are called multiple measures where instead of placement exams, uh, they're looking at high school GPAs or uh, ACT exams to place students. But that's kind of how students pretty much get there. And ultimately, if students do not possess college level math, uh, traditionally and even in the present time, they will have to start in developmental math, which is typically pre-algebra elementary algebra, intermediate algebra, possibly even arithmetic. You actually get into the history of developmental math and the variety of ways in which it's taught in an earlier chapter of the book. And so I was going to ask if you could get into some of that detail here as well. Absolutely. Well, this surprises people that the concept of developmental education, uh, which many people think is kind of this new kid on the block, it's only been around since maybe the early 2000s, 1990s. Actually, the concept of developmental education dates back to the inception of higher education uh, when Harvard College opened their doors in 1636. Um, that was even, developmental education even predates the teaching of math in higher education. Uh, typically in 1636, uh, textbooks, college textbooks were written in Latin, courses were instructed in Latin, uh, but many students in the New World did not understand Latin. So uh, colleges, starting with Harvard, needed what were called tutors to work with these students alongside their college level coursework. And tutoring was very informal. So tutors were uh, those who had taken the courses, uh, maybe even possessed baccal baccalaureate degrees. Many at that time were preparing for uh, a career in the ministry, but these individuals, uh, they, they pretty much, you know, worked with them in the dorm rooms and the cafeteria. It was very informal, but worked with these students alongside their college level coursework. So the idea of remedial education, again, goes back to um, the inception of higher education. And of course, once uh, math came about in the 1700s, uh, tutors needed to um, instruct students in mathematics. Uh, really wasn't until 1849 that we got standalone developmental education courses. And that was, be, or well, standalone developmental math and all developmental education courses, uh, reading and writing as well. And that's because um, as higher education grew, um, tutors did not have the bandwidth to help students. Uh, there, there just wasn't the capacity to meet the students' needs. So at that point, uh, it was basically the University of Wisconsin who first initiated this. Um, they needed standalone developmental math courses to actually ultimately prepare the student um, uh, in advance for the college level course. Uh, typically, or, or historically, it was lecture-based instruction in terms of how the uh, developmental education was taught. But um, we've seen in recent times that uh, there have been alternate modalities. So 
online learning, uh, which used to be distance learning, has exploded since the late 1990s. And also a common strategy in developmental education is what's called the Emporia model. So rather than traditional instruction where students go to class, the instructor explains the material, everybody's doing the same thing at the same time on the same day, um, students work independently in a computer lab, really focusing just on the content that they need um, and then maybe can accelerate through content that they already understand. And the instructor kind of works more as a facilitator rather than a lecturer. So that's kind of a different modality uh, that we've seen develop in developmental math. Yeah. I happened to be a walking and to some, to sometimes lab tutor at Virginia Tech in the early years of the Math Emporium. And it was enlightening to me to learn that it's taken off uh, in the community college setting, much more so it seems than I am aware of it having taken off in the university setting. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with qualitative research, which is, the, let's say, the modality of your study, could you describe the methodologies you used? Absolutely. So first would be uh, recruitment. Um, again, I knew uh, the student population that I was looking for, which is, again, is per purpose of sampling, um, looking for that student population who had struggled in math, hated math, um, maybe didn't even want to attend community college because of math, but ultimately in the very end uh, succeeded in a college level math course. And I want to be very uh, clear that uh, the college level math I was looking for for success was a class that was in what's called the transfer module. Uh, not necessarily a math course that may satisfy a two-year degree, but a class that we can, or a course that we can uniformly look pretty much across the country as a college-level math. Those are college algebra, quantitative reasoning, introduction to statistics, teacher preparatory math. Um, why it's called the transfer module is the student can typically go to any, having taken this course, they can go to any college university and this is recognized as their college level math requirement so starting it really started with who i wanted um in the um sample um in terms of locating community colleges and even possibly universities um, where I could select students, uh, I was able to speak with, um, I call them liaisons, kind of people within the developmental math field or introductory to community college field who were kind of able to direct me to community colleges who had been using more cutting edge strategies um, uh, I'll discuss this later, but like the uh, co-requisite model or alternate math pathways or even the uh, math emporium model, because uh, I wanted to get a, a diversity of, of modalities that, that students may be studying. So these individuals were able to kind of connect me or direct me to certain schools. Through those certain schools, I was able to speak with uh, personnel who were able to help me distribute my invitation uh, for participation for students. Kind of, and again, in the invitation, I described who I was looking for. Students then were able to contact me directly if they were um, interested in participating. And um, for qualitative research, um, it, it, and you mentioned for folks who don't really understand, the end size is a little different. Typically for quantitative research, researchers want a very large um, end size for external validity purposes. For qualitative research, it's a little different. A large qualitative study is typically in the 20s because you obtain so much rich data, you don't want to become repetitive 
negative, yet you want it to be enough. So that was kind of my goal to get around um, I, initially 20, but I, I received 25 students. I, I wanted kind of enough um, data. And um, I, I just talked about my eligibility uh, requirements that they, again, had uh, – I wanted a, just to, to play it safe, a B um, in the college-level math course um, in terms of passing. And um, yeah, once I got the 20 students, I did realize I wanted a little more information. So I uh, approached five more who had approached me. And once I got to uh, 25, um, you reach um, a pro uh, basically something in, in qualitative research called saturation, where you're not really learning any new information and you do feel you're becoming more repetitive. So once I got to that 25 mark, I found I was learning less and less information. Is what you just described purpose purposes sampling? Correct, correct. Okay. Yeah, searching for those participants. Yeah, Thanks. as opposed to a random sample, which is conducted in quantitative research. Uh, purpose of sampling is particularly uh, just people who fit those characteristics. And in case we get to it later in the discussion, uh, towards the end, you incorporate some faculty interviews in order to get some insight into the experiences students had to, in higher level or more advanced math courses in community college. Do you want to say a word about? Those interviews? Right. So um, one issue that uh, I found was there were some students who uh, they passed their college level math course, which was terrific. And even better, they decided that they wanted to become um, math teachers, uh, which meant they had to proceed in their math background. However, they struggled. So uh, that that was kind of an issue that came up that I actually didn't expect to come up. That's kind of the interesting thing about qualitative research is um, it, it's remarkable what comes up that you don't expect to come up. And that's what I, I think is great about the, the discipline. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to learn a little more about um, students who have that developmental math background um, and ultimately want to then, you know, it's not enough just to, okay, I passed my college level math course. I want to then take more courses like calculus and beyond. Um, what, what might help these students in the future? And for that, I spoke with some faculty at another community college um, who, who had specific, again, you talk about purpose of sampling, those specific backgrounds. They had taught both developmental math and college level math, especially calculus, and could really offer some insight as to how to help those students. And so we've talked about methodology, but let me ask you just for an overview, who were these students that you ended up interviewing? Um, how did they identify? What sort of lives did they lead? And, and what were their educational backgrounds coming into community college? So it was a very heterogeneous group of students, um, ages uh, 18 through 48. And um, I wanted to get, in terms of ethnicity, um, we'll go back to the purpose of sampling, just an array of backgrounds, um, black, Hispanic, uh, there was Indian, white, uh, just to kind of really diversify the backgrounds as, as much as possible. Um, what they all had in common, though, of course, was their fear or just downright hatred of math, and, and some were even afraid to even attempt uh, college uh, because of math. Uh, but their lives were very diverse. Uh, some were 18, right out of right out of high school, living at home. Uh, working. Some had been out of school for maybe a few years. They had gotten married, maybe now were divorced, now had children. Some had been out of school up to uh, 30 years. 
uh, so and of course had families, had been divorced, and were um, going back to school to improve the their quality of life. Um, you know, they wanted to make more money, get a better career, so they saw college as that route. So their their backgrounds were extremely diverse, which I was very pleased with um, in terms of being able to obtain that. And as you stressed, these students were selected because they were seeking uh, community college degrees or programs that required some mathematics training. So what courses or programs were they setting out to complete? Well, it was interesting because uh, a couple of the students even said that they actually looked for um, career paths or degrees that did not include math. Uh, and that was not possible because just about every uh, degree requires some kind of a math background, especially if you're going to, again, transfer um, to a four-year school. You, you really need some kind of a math course, uh, the ones that I mentioned before that are, are in that transfer module. So in terms of the students that I spoke with, initially coming into uh, community college, I would say non-math backgrounds, uh, nursing, education, human services, uh, business. Again, some were just liberal arts because they simply did not want to take math. All right. So you've organized the chapters concerning the students' narratives um, chronologically, roughly chronologically in terms of the sequence of courses or attempts of courses that they made, which works really well for reading the book. What I'd like to do here is focus on a handful of themes that to me came out across the chapters that you, you talk about as they recur in the text. And to begin, I'd like to ask about students' preconceptions of mathematics. So how did these students understand math as a discipline, uh, math as a tool that plays a role in our lives? And did anything challenge those perspectives as they went along? So initially, uh, they saw math as just this horrible subject that they had to take. Um, ultimately, it was a barrier. Uh, it was just a barrier to their success. They really saw no purpose in taking math whatsoever. Um, and, and in some cases, in, in their reflection of their uh, prior K-12 years, they saw no relevance in it. Um, and in some cases, it was just frustrating. Uh, for example, one um, student remembered that her teacher was explaining division by zero. For example, eight divided by zero, which is undefined. And the teacher said, well, uh, it's undefined. Mathematicians don't know what that means, and that's it. So the student thought, well, okay, does that mean mathematicians are stupid? It's like, I, so she saw really no relevance in that whatsoever. Um, however, as they continue to take developmental math and eventually college level math, uh, yeah, their perspectives did change, which was, was very enlightening. First of all, I think being able to understand that they could do math. Um, that they could actually be successful in math really gave them a confidence, and that in itself really changed their attitude. Um, also, relating math to real-world situations, which was especially the case in the quantitative reasoning course. Um, quantitative reasoning, by the way, is um, a relatively new course that's becoming more widespread, a college-level course that's designed for non-STEM um, majors, science, technology, engineering, math, uh, non-math fields, basically. The course consists of probability, business math, uh, data description, but it's a course for non-math majors with a lot of real-life applications. So this was enlightening to a lot of students, really seeing these, these real-life applications. They also saw them through statistics and even the, the teacher prep course. And also, I think how past misconceptions were, were rectified. I just mentioned the student who, um, 12 divided by zero, while well, mathematicians don't know what that means. So her teacher gave her this great example of how 12 divided by zero or 10 divided by zero relates to real life. And that was just an aha moment. 
And that in itself really gave her a better appreciation of math. This was a community college instructor. Who Absolutely. Gave yeah. All were, yes. So closely related to students' perceptions of math were their perceptions of math class. And I now want to ask, what experiences did they associate with math classes? And what did they expect coming into developmental math? So prior to coming into developmental math, uh, their, their expectations, expectations were extremely low. Um, overall, uh, in fact, one chat, I really use one chapter to really explore and have the participants discuss their um, K-12 backgrounds. Overall, they were bad. Uh, they were pretty bad. In fact, that one chapter, chapter four, which discusses their previous backgrounds, um, it, it, it can get some, somewhat depressing when you, when you read there. It gets better. I, I promise you that it gets better, but their, their, their uh, experiences coming into community college were not good at all. Um, interesting enough, some students actually started off liking math in elementary school. Um, they remember being able to, uh, they were successful at like basic addition, subtraction, multiplication. I thought what was enlightening was one um, student participant remembered that in third, fourth grade, his teacher even called him Mr. Expert in math because he was good at math. So there were some, some very positive experiences early on for some students. What happened though, and this was um, a common theme, is as they progressed through elementary school into middle school, they just developed more and more gaps in math and the gaps just became larger and it it, be, it got to a point where familiar concepts just became less and less and less familiar so it's almost it was almost like the the, the feeling of drowning where uh they, they were just kind of lo- losing it losing it losing it and whatnot um some i thought one uh one, one anecdote was interesting one uh participant remembered how um, the teacher started a class. This was like in middle school or high school. With today, we're going to talk about circles. And he thought, well, okay, I remember circles. That's circumference equals pi times diameter, right? Area equals pi times the radius squared. But all of a sudden, they get into arcs and degrees and all kinds of more complex terminology. And that was like, okay, this is not as easy as it used to be. So simpler concepts just just became uh, much, much, much more difficult. Um, Several students also relay just embarrassing situations where they they just kind of became the uh, unfortunately the, the the comic relief in the class where uh, they would get called on they would have a ridiculous answer not know the answer get laughed at um, you know we hope we hear those experience we hear about those experiences in gym class right where the you know the student who's klutzy and whatnot and unathletic it was the same thing in a math class it just became one student even called it humiliation one hundred and one. Uh, because it just became the, this constant theme of just being humiliated um, you know, in a math class. And what started really happening was um, I asked the participants, because typically high schools have tracking levels for students. You have the it, – it's called different things, but there's like a college or, or even honors if we're going to start up there, an honors level, a college preparatory level, which is really those students on the tracking towards – uh, they'll take algebra and geometry, but it's uh, geared towards college. Then there may be below or applied level, which is below the college level, which is obviously a more watered-down version of algebra or geometry, slower pace, um, less content. And many of the students were in those um, tracks. Uh, some started in the higher level and basically had to dip down. Some students said that it was because the content just got harder. Many just admitted that they had poor work habits. 
Uh, they, they basically just had poor work habits. They really didn't put forth the effort that they needed and therefore kind of slided down. And then, and then it became a mixture. Uh, you know, they admitted that they weren't doing the work, but of course, you know, uh, feeling stupid in math simply led to, um, you know, humiliation and, and whatnot. Um, some students didn't even uh, finish, for example, even if the school required four years of math, they were able to just get by with only, um, you know, two or three years and, and finish up their math. So some didn't even take math, uh, let's say their junior or senior year. And of course, some students, because they had been out of school for so long, um, it had been years uh, since they had taken math. So one of the additional uh, barriers or frustrations some of these students I remember experienced was the feeling what we call math anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that led directly into a later discussion in the book about ways students found, not just those who were math anxious, but those who struggled in a variety of ways, found to handle taking exams that were presented to them in the college setting. So I did want to take a moment here to ask if you could talk a moment about test prep techniques that ended up working for these students and how that ties into the causes of their math anxiety. Well, and with math anxiety, and I've, I've given some workshops on math anxiety to create awareness about it. And what I like people to understand about math anxiety is that it's, it's basically an anxiety. I mean, it's a general anxiety that we all have anxieties towards this, that, or the other. So it's, it's anxiety towards something. And the question I'll, I'll start off asking is, if I had more blank, fill in the blank, I would feel less anxious. And I, there, there's a lot of correct answers. But the answer, confidence, obviously, is, is, is one definitely correct answer. But what I'm looking for is control. If I had more control, I would feel less anxious. And I think when we're in situations as people, not just mathematics, but as people, when we feel more in control, we tend to feel less anxious. So generally, for students who have math anxiety, it's a feeling of things just being out of control. Um, You know, going back to what I was saying about how the gaps um, through K-12 just kept widening and widening and widening, they simply felt less and less in control of their math education. They knew that ultimately they had to pass this class um, and they had to master the content, uh, but they felt less and less in control. And that really in turn um, was a big factor that led to math anxiety, obviously, uh, add to that feeling humiliated, feeling stupid, just you know, feeling like you just you just can't do things. So, um, really, the the treatment for that is what can students do to really help themselves feel more in control, to alleviate the math anxiety, especially when it comes to exams. And ultimately, it came down to being more proactive in their math education. Really reduced the math anxiety. And first of all, even before the exams, um, some students found that pre-preparatory programs, like prior to the college course, um, alleviated the anxiety. So one community college offered uh, this kind of a a jumpstart program where students prior to starting the college course could actually uh, work in, in basically in a tutorial service uh, that the college offered with tutors on content that they were going to cover in the class in advance. So it was the week before classes began, let's say a pre-algebra class, and they could work on content such as sign numbers, evaluating expressions, maybe some basic equations. And what this did is it gave them an edge 
on, first of all, mastering some of the content before they started uh, and also developing some study habits and whatnot and becoming familiar with the concept. So simply being proactive and coming into the class um, with that knowledge really alleviated the anxiety. Um, one participant said, I mean, her, her school didn't offer that, but she basically took the initiative on herself to go to the tutorial center. She had people work with her on videos, got some individual instruction, basically prepared in advance. So that was a big part, preparation in advance before starting the course that, that really helped a lot of students. With uh, the exams, uh, same thing. So there are some um, test-taking strategies. I think a common I, – I can really vouch for this as a math teacher. A common misconception in math is I don't have to study for a math test. If I know the material uh, – no is very subjective, but if I know the material, I'll pass, which is incorrect. There are definite proactive ways to study for a math exam. Uh, one way is something – a method – it has different terms, and there may be terms I don't even know. Uh, I know it as the data drop-off or the memory dump. And uh, some um, instructors used this method with students in this study. Uh, the data dump, a data uh, dump rather, or um, or data drop off or memory dump, basically refers to going into a test. Now, obviously, you can't have a cheat sheet when you take a test. Most of the time, that's the case. It's tests are typically, as they've always been, paper and pencil, closed book. But what if once you got your exam, rather than reading the first question? and maybe going blank, which can happen to a lot of people, you take a few minutes on a separate piece of paper or a blank, you know, blank paper or the back of the test and write down some formulas, um, different ways of maybe remembering something, concepts that you know you're going to need maybe in your own language, and then it's there for when you need it. So the quadratic formula. What if you're afraid of forgetting the quadratic formula? Because typically – we go blank when we start reading the test questions. That's when the anxiety increases. So don't read the test questions. Just kind of take what's in your – it's almost like you're taking what's in your brain and just dropping it down on a piece of paper. So the quadratic formula is specifically one example. If we even go back to basic arithmetic, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally for order of operations. I mean there's uh, numerous examples, and I, and I cited a few in the book. Um, so that's one uh, strategy that really worked. And on top of that, it's not just about waiting for the exam to – to do that. It's practicing this in advance. So I have a test on Thursday. What I'm going to do is leading up to the exam, in addition to practicing problems, I'm going to practice this memory dump several days in advance. Uh, okay, I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm about to get my test. What am I going to write down on the, the for the memory dump or the data drop-off uh, that it's there when I need it? So I don't just wait for the test. It's practicing this in advance. So that proved to be a very good uh, proactive strategy for students. Additionally, uh, students realized that they had to, um, you know, correct previous problems. In other words, uh, you know, there were students who uh, they didn't pass right away the, the community college math course, uh, developmental math course, because they fell back or stayed in bad habits. And one was simply ignoring mistakes they made on homework problems or in class. And they realized, I need to go back to previous homework questions that I got wrong because, well, yeah, if I got it wrong the first time, how am I going to get it right on the test? So correcting uh, previous habits really helped or previous problems really helped. Um, something else that the students found uh, very helpful, and this was another common theme, not just for exams, but really just in their uh, math endeavor was making connections with peers, um, making connections with classmates and working together in study groups. That really helped. I mean, it, it, for studying for exams, 
but it also helped um, in general in mastering material. Uh, one gentleman mentioned that um, because he was in a study group, that was accountability because they would – the group would get together. They would discuss problems that they were struggling with, work with each other. But if he didn't come to the group with what he was supposed to do, he was useless. So that in itself really made him um, review the problems more and do what he needed to do for that group. But uh, definitely the, the study groups and making connections with peers really helped. And kind of to connect both uh, math anxiety and exams, um, one student I thought said something that's – Let's face it, it's cliche because as math teachers, we tell students, work on your prob- work on your math every day. I mean, it's almost something like we say that people don't even hear, and it, it, it sounds almost so cliche that you, it shouldn't even be said. But what I thought the student said that was interesting because he, he in particular had a lot of uh, math anxiety, and I think a lot of anxiety in general. He, he um, really reflected that he was a very anxious person in general. He was very nervous about going to school, and he had a lot of bad experiences and whatnot. Uh, so he was very afraid of math. And what he said is, if I'm working on my math, I'm not afraid of it. Uh, and that's really true in real life, right? If we're uh, if we're confronting something and we're working on what we're afraid of, we're not afraid of it anymore. So I thought that was very interesting that by working on his math every day – doing practice problems every day. He was no longer afraid of it. And of course, that constant uh, repetition, of course, helped him for the exam. Uh, Some students learned all too late that, yes, cramming at the very last minute, as opposed to working on it every day, does not help. So one thing you mentioned in some detail there is the need students came to realize they had to change their habits, their attitudes, and in some cases, even their lifestyles in order to be able to, to really tackle these classes with the dedication they required. So something else I wanted to ask was, did this tend to happen in time? How did students handle the situations where they did not address these needs in time? And what role did their peer networks outside of the community college setting play in their abilities to make these changes? So, uh, and I'll preface this by saying, going back to their high school days, um, many of the participants mentioned that they were able to get by um, in high school. They were able to pass their high school math courses really without doing the necessary work. They ultimately should not have passed, but they were pretty much uh, put through the system. Uh, Where that became dangerous is they entered community college ultimately thinking that no matter what they would pass well i i failed my exams in high school so i'll be okay even if i don't pay even if i even if i have a 25 average and i need a 60 to pass i'll still pass that they they legitimately thought that so that was kind of an ingredient for failure when entering community college it's just this this misconception uh well actually I hate to say that it's a misconception because in the past it did work for students. They were able to do little to nothing and they were able to pass in high school, Uh, not the case in community college. So first of all, some of them learned the hard way uh, and they were legitimately shocked that they, um, even though they knew they were not passing, they did not, you know, numerically have what it took to pass the course. They weren't putting forth the effort. It took actually um, getting that F, uh, to make them realize that they were not going to pass. Even when their instructor said, you need to withdraw from the course so you don't get an F, they didn't believe them because in high school, uh, they had always passed. So uh, for some, it really was um, you know, learning through failure. Um, others really had to change their lifestyle. And 
when it came to changing the life, their lifestyle um, so that they were able to focus on their math courses, it, that was very diverse. There was one participant who um, he and his wife had just had a new baby and uh, you know he was taking on a majority of the responsibility. He was up with his son like all night. He had an eight o'clock class um, and he was just not getting any sleep, which meant he was – First of all, not folk doing – he was falling behind in his math class, his developmental math class, and uh, then ultimately missing his class because he scheduled an 8 o'clock uh, math class probably wasn't the best idea. Um, so he really needed to speak with his spouse about, okay, are, are you with me on this? I really want to get this degree, but I need your help. Can we really work out a better schedule so that I could focus on my studies? And there was another participant that had to do that with her husband. Then it ranged to very extreme situations. I mean, there were students who were battling um, alcoholism, depression. One um, participant actually found himself homeless in the middle of the, the semester, and that was a wake-up call for him. So they really needed to address some of these very extreme situations. Um, it did help that they were able to use um, some of the resources through the college. Their advisors and counselors um, at the community college were able to really connect them possibly with people in social services to really help them uh, sort these issues out, possibly get housing um, or, 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 or therapy or whatnot. So it's amazing. it really was uh, very enlightening how the community college, the entity of the community college, or the community college had the infrastructure that they were people who were able to help these people. But ultimately, yes, it was, um, you know, um, you'd asked um, earlier about, you know, feedback I've gotten from the book. And one, um, educational leader mentioned that this almost felt like um, the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, in that you know students really had to address first not only their personal work habits, but also these life situations so that they could actually tackle um, a subject as difficult as mathematics. Mm-hmm. So this ties in actually, Again, to your comment earlier about students who maybe fared well or really enjoyed math at the elementary or middle school level and then came to dislike it due to experiences. Some of those perhaps due to the, the I think you call it the progressivity of math mm-hmm. as a subject. And so something I wanted to ask um, that might tie into this uh, as well is of the students who eventually, who found successes on their first tries versus those who had to experience failure or ended up experiencing failure before they arrived at successful completion of these courses, were there different factors that really determined uh, or had or affected their success? Or was this just a replay of uh, the same experience, except they were better prepared for it? Now, do you mean the students who struggled in the higher level math, um, you know, once they, they completed their college level math or the students who just struggled through developmental math and college level math? Oh, that's a good question. I should ask about that as well. But I was asking about people who are of the students who failed a developmental okay. course and then had to retake it. Okay. And again, it was really a variety of, um, I guess, you know, reasons why they failed. Um Ultimately, for some students, it was when they failed, they realized they wanted a better quality of life. Um, So one participant, uh, she was 18, um, kind of had independence, got a job, was thinking, hey, listen, you know, I can just, uh, I I can work, I, I can stay out late with my friends, you know, a freedom that 
uh, she didn't have in high school. So who needs school? And then she realized, well, okay, she was she was working as a server, but uh, she wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't going to be getting any more money. Uh, her, you know, is she was thinking, is this going to be the rest of my life? So that was kind of a wake up call for her. All right, I really I, I want to do something else with my life. What 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 would I like to do? She was thinking about how she had worked in a daycare center. I like working with children. Um, you know, at one point she'd worked at a daycare center. So I think I really I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to take it seriously. Um, one, one gentleman, um, again, really just didn't take school seriously. He had always passed in high school. So he, uh, joined the army and in, uh, the army realized he enjoyed being a chef and realized this is what he wanted from his career, open up his own restaurant. But of course, college could help him with that. Um, and again, that quality of life was, was a motivator for, for some students. So it really took, um, failing the first time then kind of going back out into the world uh, and then and then others really um got into trouble um you know in terms of like okay this is they they uh, you know one gentleman got into a uh for example he got into a gang uh actually spent some time in jail and said listen i i really need a better quality of life so that in itself from the minor to the extreme was a was a motivator um and then there were some um, where lack of preparedness was the issue. Uh, for example, some students there, even though they they tested into developmental math, their background was so weak that even a pre-algebra class, typically pre-algebra classes are the lowest level of develop of standalone developmental math classes in most community colleges. And uh, pre-algebra, really, you know, when you look at it on the K-12 model is sixth, seventh, eighth grade math. So you need some background to do, to uh, be successful in pre-algebra, introduction to integers, evaluating expressions, uh, word problems, equations. But for some of these students, they had such weak arithmetic backgrounds. And unfortunately, they simply couldn't keep up from day one in these pre-algebra courses because their arithmetic backgrounds were so weak. And typically we hear, well, just give them the calculator. But I thought one participant said it very well. Well, what if you're in a situation where, I mean, a calculator can tell me six times four is 24, but what if I'm in a situation, which we often are, to figure out six times what is 24? The calculator doesn't tell you what the what is. Um, so their number sense even was so weak. So for these students, they had to find a way to really um, enhance their arithmetic background before they could even take the introductory developmental math course. And for these students, there was a, and again, I really tip my cap to the uh, community colleges for, for th- that was so important, you know, being able to, you know, help these students. Okay. Cause really they, they, these students could have really fallen through the cracks. Like they were struggling in, in pre-algebra, they could have just dropped out. But, uh, there were a few different pathways for these students who were really struggling in arithmetic. Um, a couple of the schools offered what were called uh, week-long refreshers in arithmetic. So prior to pre-algebra, they could take um, a week-long intensive arithmetic course that covered just the basics. What basic arithmetic concepts do you need for pre-algebra? Fractions, decimals, percentages, proportions. Um, and that really kind of helped them brush up. Um 
Another case, um, a gentleman was able to work independently in the tutorial services with a tutor prior to the pre-algebra course where they basically set up a program for him of, okay, they worked with his teacher of, okay, where is this student weakened? What arithmetic concepts does this student need? And the student was able to work on those, those concepts. Uh, there were also a couple of cases where for when, when the background was so weak, the student had to enroll in what was called an adult basic education class. Um, adult basic education usually is not part of the community college. These are usually state-funded programs um, that are external. They're free, um, where students can uh, brush up on basic math, basic English, but they are classes where students were able to, uh, these students were able to focus on fractions, decimals, and whatnot. So they're, they're not college credit. They're usually, sometimes community colleges will have them on their campus or they'll have to go to an external campus. But what's really commendable is that the community college for these students that, that really needed this, they were able to really guide the student towards these programs and work with them as they were, and, and keep up with them as they were in these programs. Not like, okay, go, go away to this adult basic education program, really keep in touch with them, like, you know, because we want you to succeed in math here. Um, so you'll take this program, but we're going to work with you throughout the process. Keep up um, on your progress. And uh, that helped them because then they were able to, you know, one student said, guess what? You know, I tested into pre-algebra once I completed this program. So for, you know, lack of preparedness, um, which can be a big issue, that really helped as well. Um, and then um, also, I think you, you, mentioned this in the question, family members were also a big, big uh, help to family support. Uh, I thought it was interesting how one gentleman, you know, was the first weekend after, uh, you know, school began, he sat on the couch to watch uh, football and his wife came over, turned off the TV and said, no, you're, you're studying, you know, we, we, we've got kids, uh, you know, we, you know, you need to be able to do this. And what, what's interesting is if I remember correctly, this student actually started in the, in the spring semester, which is January. So if I'm correct in that, he was probably trying to watch playoff football. So man, that was uh, that, that that took that was a uh, you know big risk turning off the TV playoff level football, but that that's what he needed to do. Uh, they needed to you know be able to make those kinds of sacrifices um, you know towards their studies. And how about the difference uh, of experiences redoing a course versus progressing to another level of difficulty? Uh, and then this is what I meant to tie back to people's experiences in elementary versus high school math, where the mathematics gets, or the course gets much rougher, and their prior experience of doing quite well in it gets disrupted. Yeah, yeah and for some students, um, and I call these students coasters, uh, they were able to, for example, do well in um, pre-algebra or elementary algebra, which is kind of middle middle algebra, when they got to intermediate algebra, really, really struggled uh, because simply coasting along with basic knowledge but not putting forth the effort was kind of a wake-up call uh, because they were just, you know, they were not able to rely on prior backgrounds passed with, let's say, a C in the course. So that was a wake-up call. Um, for some students, as they progressed into the college-level math, uh, because the college-level math, whether it was college algebra or statistics, for example, was so much more rigorous and fast-paced, um, and the cumulative content really came at them very quickly. So that was really um, a wake-up call. Uh, in terms of how they adapted um, to the harder math or the cumulative content, again, it was it was just so diverse. Um, some realized that they needed a more thorough background because, again, it's you know gaps are such an ingredient to failure, and it, it's not just about um, understanding some, a content 
uh, or understanding a topic like 25 or 50 percent, you really have to have a thorough understanding of that topic. So, for example, to understand equation of a line um, in algebra, you really have to understand slope completely and y-intercept. I mean, those are concepts to put together. To really understand um, solving quadratic equations, you have to understand factoring. Um, you have to understand factoring really inside and out. You really can't do it. So for, for some students, it was really making sure that they understood those prerequisite concepts, going back and making sure they understood those prerequisite concepts um, really thoroughly. Uh, for other students, it was also a, a question of organization. One gentleman, when he got to statistics, realized that the, 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 the content was, was so much more difficult. The course was so much more fast-paced. He had to organize his time better. See, in pre-algebra, because the content was a little bit easier, he was able to get by maybe on not as good or subpar uh, study habits. But what his advisor did is helped him in statistics put together a program or a schedule for him of how he was going to tackle his math. In other words, he went to class, so here's how soon after his math class he was going to do his homework problems um, to really keep him organized, keep him like fresh um, in the content. Um, now, for some students, um, for example, and this happened in college algebra, they just simply, even though they, they took or completed their developmental math uh, background, they simply just didn't really have the bandwidth or the foundation um, to succeed in college algebra, which is uh, functions, uh, logarithms, conic sections, a very, very difficult course. And in that case, they really needed an alternative pathway, which is something that is, is really exciting that's being offered um, in the present time. So they were able to go, uh, for example, to, for example, the teacher prep class, uh, quantitative reasoning or statistics. So, and that's uh, why I say that's exciting is because in the past, it was typically all students had to take college algebra. But now, I think in the last 10 years, we've realized, well, not all students really need college algebra based on their career. College algebra should really be for those um, STEM majors, you know, those going for engineering or, or, or math going towards calculus. So for, for some students, when the, the content got really hard, it was a question of redirection. And this brings me back to a topic that was a very important theme that I don't want to leave the interview without addressing, which is the different modalities that community colleges offered for students taking either one math class or additional math classes in, in a preparatory fashion. Can you say a word about what, how these students reacted to that uh, availability, that diversity of modality and how they fared um, in, the, in the choices they made or were not able to make because of what this what the colleges offered well starting with developmental math as i was as i was saying um many schools it instead of or in addition to offer the Emporia model for uh, developmental math. And uh, that was a surprise for some students because typically in their background, they were used to the uh, lecture-based or traditional instruction. I sit at a chair and the teacher's up at the front of the room and I get the content explained to me. So uh, some students did not like at all, uh, especially the non-traditional students, students who'd been out of school for a while, uh, the, the Emporia model. They, they just simply felt lost and confused, like I'm, I'm supposed to learn the material on my own and just ask questions when I have a question. Um, unfortunately, one uh, community college 
that's all, that was their uh, modality for um, developmental math, that and online. They, uh, there was no traditional lecture-based instruction. So one gentleman, um, again, in talking with his advisor, he actually, just for his developmental math, went to another community college so he could get that traditional instruction. Um, so that was a little bit of a rude awakening, that um, Emporium model. Others liked it because they liked to be able to focus simply on um, – the content that they needed and in getting individual instruction. Uh, and, and for other students, they enjoyed the um, Emporium model in the earlier, or, or I don't want to say easier, but earlier developmental math courses like pre-algebra. Once it got harder, like intermediate algebra, when the topics got harder, they really needed that traditional instruction. So in other words, like it, it's very difficult to try and learn from a computer or a math program, uh, for example, my math lab or Alex, um, system of equations. Um, I really need somebody to give me guided practice on system of equations, and then I can practice on my own. So it, it kind of varied in some senses there. Um, and then for the college level, um, as I was mentioning, there, there's alternative math pathways now in, this, in the sense that, um, you know, not all students have to, you know, take the entire developmental math sequence. By that, I mean elementary or, or rather pre-algebra, elementary algebra, intermediate algebra, and then college algebra. Um, what they're able to do is after pre-algebra, they can branch off into different directions. They can take quantitative reasoning because, or, or statistics, and that's because quantitative reasoning and statistics really does not require as much algebra background as, let's say, college algebra. For example, uh, quantitative reasoning and statistics generally does not require the mastery of quadratic equations or complex numbers or um, – well, statistics requires radicals, but advanced um, radical equations and whatnot. So what they're able to do is uh, after they complete their pre-algebra course, uh, they can take quantitative reasoning or statistics with what's called a co-requisite. Um, some schools refer to this as just-in-time remediation, where um, in addition – to their college level course. So it could be on a separate day or it could even be before the class. They're in another class where they focus on just the skills that they need that are coming up for that class. So to give a concrete example in quantitative reasoning, um, one common topic is uh, debt to income ratio. Uh, to do that, however, requires solving equations with fractions. So in the co-requisite class, the students may focus simply on um, solving equations with fractions. That way, when they get to the college level class, they're able to do that successfully. They're able to apply that correctly. Um, so that that was uh, that's definitely kind of a cutting edge strategy, something that I sought out, again, when, when looking for my, my samples through colleges. Um, in terms of the students' reactions to uh, co-requisites, generally it was very positive um, because they they were able they, – they appreciated being able to have less – complete their coursework in less time. So rather than two separate semesters, they were able to complete their college-level course sooner. They were also able to apply the uh, content quicker. Um, but what they did acknowledge, and this is actually my concern about co-requisites, is that 
it is a lot of work. It's a lot of time because think about this. You're taking your college level statistics or your college level quantitative reasoning, it, in, which is a lot of work by itself. In addition to that, you're taking a co-requisite class. That's a lot of math. That's a lot of time. And, and several participants mentioned that they, they didn't realize how much time was going to be involved in um, taking both of those classes. So they, they kind of burned out as the semester went on. Some said that as a result, they stopped attending or doing the work for the co-requisite class, which actually led to failure because they, if they weren't attending the co-requisite class, they weren't getting the skills that they needed for the college level course. So that was something that I think the students really said that people need to be aware of, that this is a lot of work. And in some cases, um, co-requisite courses just simply don't have the bandwidth to help students. Uh, some colleges are using co-requisites, not just for quantitative reasoning or statistics, but college algebra. Uh, which again is very, uh, very, very difficult content. So it's not enough to, uh, for example, if you're in the college algebra class, if they are studying logarithmic functions, which may re or trigonometric functions, if it's a college algebra with trig class, they need to understand the quadratic formula or quadratic equations solving by factoring. It's not enough to to just simply learn quadratic equations in one class and then quickly apply it. They need the time to really practice and practice and practice. So with the co-requisites, while it was positive, there, there, there are some warning flags there that it's, it's co-requisites are not the be all and end all to um, issues or, or eliminating um, developmental math. So let's jump to the last chapter where you lay out several lessons you took away from the study. I don't think we have time to touch upon every one of them. And so I want to ask, are there one or two that you think are especially valuable, interesting, worth getting into in this conversation? Um, one uh, point that I wanted to make was, um, and actually I, I said it specifically, connections should be made, not forced. And as I mentioned, it was a very common theme throughout the book, um, the importance of connections, uh, making connections with peers, uh, working, collaborating with other students, uh, developing support networks. What has happened um, in recent times, especially with the quantitative reasoning course, is there are outside entities, who organizations who believe this course um, should be taught quantitative reasoning by more of a group-based or inquiry approach. We're seeing that at the K-12 level where group-based instruction is, is mandated. And now we're seeing that a little bit more at the community college level. So in other words, rather than um, the instructor uh, starting with, okay, probability, uh, the students will actually work together uh, using materials to try and understand by working together uh, rules of probability, formulas, and then possibly present it to the class. The instructor works more as a facilitator asking questions, but you don't have that guided practice. Uh, several students really struggled with um, basically that modality, saying, um, I, I, I mean, I'm a weak math student. I need that thorough instruction. Um, I appreciate working together with my peers, but I really need that thorough instruction from beginning to middle to end um, from my teacher, you know, before I can actually apply these problems. So I think that's very important to remember that while uh, collaborative learning is imperative, um, I think mandating group work, mandating uh, inquiry-based instruction can be harmful to the students. So let me ask, oh, actually, let me jump in and just say something that I did take away from your book 
but I'm really taking away from our conversation is an appreciation for the resources that community colleges offer their students. Um, I have not myself been to a community college as an instructor or as a student, and I certainly don't, I did not experience the extent of support um, from the university setting that I'm used to that you've described and that your book documents. And so shout out to our community college system for making those resources available and supporting students who uh, in many cases really need it. Um, one more question about lessons. You recruited these students into your study because they had achieved success. What lessons do you take from their experiences that students who have not yet had such success would benefit from? Other than, of course, everything we've just described. Well, I mean, it's an unfortunate reality that, uh, you know, many students uh, presently are, you know, simply, you know, falling through the cracks, whatnot. Uh, but I, I, I think what I'm going to really go back to what you were just saying a couple minutes ago. It's it's that support network um, throughout the community college that I think can really help those students because again it wasn't just about good instruction it was about having an advisors that were able to reach out it was uh not just good instruction but also caring faculty um you know there was there was one example of um a student who started a class had a very bad experience in his first pre-algebra class but he went to a teacher who he actually knew uh, that he'd work with uh, previously, who was able to connect him with, um, you know, a better instructor who was able to meet his needs more. Um, also, uh, the tutorial services um, for students. You know, several students documented that uh, they, they received a lot of help through the Academic Support Center, tutorial services, working with a lot of great people, um, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. So I, I think what we have to really look is the, is, is the infrastructure of the community college, not just great instruction, but how as a community college uh, can we use all these, are we using all of these resources and what can we do better um, to reach these students who may uh, fall through the cracks. Just as an, you know, as an example of what we were talking about, I mean, I could easily see those uh, students who needed help in arithmetic just fall, and I'm sure that that happens more than we want to think about falling through the cracks. But because there were caring individuals that were able to connect them with individual programs in arithmetic or the adult basic education, they were able to be successful. So let me ask one more question about this, or following up from the study. Um, were there major, major limitations you faced or questions you'd like to have answers that you hope future work will address? So um, one limitation was basically the um, the fact that this study was more of a snapshot in time. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the time frame from the publication to, and then I, I also documented when students entered and when they they, they, they passed. So we're looking at the late 2000 teens. Um, so we're looking at obviously what were the modalities, what were the initiatives that helped students uh, be successful in that time period. Uh, what, um, and this is actually something I'm, I'm looking towards future research, uh, can we look comprehensively at the history of community college um, going back to the inception of community college? What have what are what what modalities what initiatives have been used over time, uh, past and present that we can use to help future students? Some work to look out for. So winding down, um, is there a piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours? Uh, 
Well, as I mentioned, there aren't too many um, actual books on um, community college education, which I'm, I'm hoping will change. Uh, definitely a lot of uh, terrific articles uh, by a lot of expertise in the field. I'll just, I'll just mention some names, Dr. Zachary Beamer, Dr. Julie Phelps, Dr. Peter Barr, Dr. Paul Nolting, um, among many others, um, have written some uh, great pieces on um, developmental math and um, introductory community college math. Thank you. And then finally, uh, now that you've concluded this study, what are you working on now? Well, that goes back to what I was just saying in terms of uh, what I'd like to uh, look at further. Uh, uh -huh. So actually, I, I do have another book that's um, just about entering production now. It should be out um, this summer, I'm told. And it was actually something I started working on. I, I, was, I was thinking about a series of articles uh, couple years ago and then kind of abandoned the project. And then once this book got published, I went back to that and really picked it up in earnest. Uh, it'll be called Community College Math Past, Present, and Future. And what it does is it focuses on the history of community college math all the way back to the 1970s, uh, late 60s, 70s with the inception of community colleges. What initiatives have been used? What have been faculty experiences, both good and bad, what can we learn from those initiatives? And also trends as well, trends that have passed through the community college math system, mandates uh, that have passed through the community college math system. And ultimately, the, the question I wanted to answer is, what can we learn from the past and the present to set up a positive future? So if I were to develop future pathways because um, a great college president once said that as a leader, um, your job is not to manage the present, it's to prepare for the future. So if we were to prepare um, and look at future pathways for students to help them be successful, what would these look like based on what we've learned in the past and the present? I look forward to taking a look at the book when it's finally Absolutely. out. Absolutely. I'm excited about that. So I've been talking with Brian Caffarella author of the new book, Breaking Barriers, Student Success in Community College Mathematics, published by CRC in 2021. Brian, thank you again so much for joining me. Thank you for having me.